This episode is brought to you by Pokes Spices. Discover flavorful goodness. Learn more at pokspices.org. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. We're having a great show. We're talking about Brewers Association style guidelines. It's more fun than you think, and it's part of the reason why craft beer has grown so much. So let's go through our guests. Uh, we'll start with Chris. Please introduce yourself. Hi, uh, thanks, Jimmy. Uh, my name is Chris Swersey, and I am the competition director for the Brewers Association. Great. And BR? Uh, BR Rolia, formerly with uh, Shelton Brothers Importers and also a BJCP nationally ranked judge. Great. And we may have James Ty joining us in a little bit uh, due to some technical difficulties. He's not on at this time. So, uh, Chris, about two months ago, I got a, a great uh, press release like I regularly do from the Brewers Association. And it was talking about style guidelines. And I don't think I've ever really talked about it too much. In the past, we've done shows about uh, certain homebrew competitions in New York and BJCP style guidelines. But we've never talked to um, the Brewers Association about styles. So let, let's just get a little background on you because you, you're a pretty cool guy and how uh, the style guidelines played out with things like the GABF you know, competitions and how, how it got started. I mean, how did you even start working for the Brewers Association? Um, well, I, I, I started off as a, um, in, the, in the late 1980s as a homebrew member and then became a commercial, uh, you know, a brew pub brewer in the early 90s um, and maintained, a, you know, a professional membership uh, through that whole time. And then in the early 2000s, um, our, I, I left commercial brewing, but stayed in the industry with, um, you know, with consulting and so forth and um, remained a supplier member um, of the, of the uh, association. And um, in 2001, um, you know, uh, visited, uh, visited with some, uh, some friends at the Craft Brewers Conference. Um, I think it was in Portland that year. Anyway, long story short, um, Started uh, started as the competition um, manager in training, I suppose uh, at that at that time, and then it's it's just ballooned ever since. Um, you know, as a competition manager and then competition director recently, and then around um, two thousand five or six, I started to contribute um, on a very minor league level to the the annual update to the beer style guidelines. And you know, up until a couple of years ago, Charlie Papazian um, really really that was his his baby to care and feed for so um you know i started to do more and more of that over time and most recently the last two or three years i've uh, you know i've i've um spearheaded the 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 yearly effort to update that document and it's been a lot of fun um and look i'm very i'm very aware that i'm following in uh, some pretty big footsteps from you know with with charlie and before him michael jackson so um I guess that's a, a, a short history. So at what point in this, you know, great craft beer renaissance uh, did people realize that the, the style guidelines were important? And what role did Michael Jackson, the, the beer writer, have in that? 
You know, Michael, as, as I understand it, um, you know, this Michael and, and Charlie met each other long before I became a home brewer. Um, but as I understand it, Michael really prevailed on Charlie to start thinking about beer, at, you know, stylistically um, rather than in terms of brands, you know, a beer brand. And, um, you know, Michael's earliest writings and all the way through, really, you, you read his books and he talks a great deal about trying to find commonality in, in different kinds of beers so that you can talk, you know, you can compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. And that's really served the entire, you know, the whole world of, of beer drinking really well. Uh, brewers have, you know, a, a common lexicon of, of terms and, and stylistic understanding, sort of a, a rough idea of what a, a, a kind of style bucket might look like. And so do drinkers for that matter. And, you know, when a, when a, when a drinker, you know, understands, you know, a, a British pale ale or a, an American IPA, um, you know, that, that really has meaning and it really sets the stage for what kind of a drinking experience, you know, they're going to, they're going to expect um, when they, you know, when they go into that, into that cooler and reach for that next six pack or that, you know, that 750 mil large format bottle. But um Michael was that's it started with Michael and um, he really influenced Charlie to um, to start to think about beer that way. And Charlie did. Um, Charlie, you know, started to publish um, style guidelines that really reflected some of Michael's work and some of what was happening in early, early U.S. craft. And then it just ballooned from there. And, you know, we've got guidelines now that have 100 and Oh man, 160, 180 different beer styles in them now from around the world. It's uh, it's really exciting. Uh, on a separate note, so if I'm a home brewer or I'm a brewer, within those style guidelines, how much flexibility uh, does each brewer have in terms of recipe? You know, at some point, if you're adding certain grain or or something else, is is does that stay within the style guideline? You know, that's a that's a great question. Um, Generally speaking, you know, we try to we try to adjust the guidelines so that each so that each style is as big a tent as possible. You know, we're we're not in it to tell somebody this is how you have to make beer. Um, we're we're in it to try to you know create a bucket that describes where that beer might land. I mean, we're we're trying to reflect what's going on out in the marketplace rather than the opposite. We don't we don't want to prescribe to brewers this is how you must make beer. Um, so it's, uh, it's more the opposite, you know, and, and it's really hard to say, like, you know, if you, if you change a particular grain, you know, if you were to, let's say you were to change from using roasted barley to black patent in your, you know, in your stout, would that still taste like Irish stout? I suppose that's, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Um, but more than anything, we always encourage home brewers and commercial brewers alike to not only brew what they what they like to drink but what their you know what their friends and their and their drinkers you know their customers like to drink yeah and it's not re not really up to us to tell brewers how to you know how to how to make beer and, and how their beers are supposed to taste let's jump uh br is on now br just tell us about uh your background as a bjcp judge and what styles mean in in the the homebrew and the New York City brewing community? Uh, well, I started as a home brewer um, probably about 20 years ago um, and had, had met up with a homebrew club, the, the Malted Barley Appreciation Society. We met at Muggs in Williamsburg 
Um, and started, you know, really enjoyed it. Um, was having, you know, it was nice to be able to brew different styles. Um, and of course, Charlie Papazian, his books were, you know, our textbooks in terms of, uh, learning how to brew. Um, and then ended up one of the members of our club, uh, was a judge and wanted to get some more people involved in the, the BJCP, the beer judge certification program. So he held a class. Um, and then we, yeah, learned, you, you learn the styles, you learn how to evaluate beer, um, and took the exam. Um, but I mean, it's in terms of competitions, you know, it's, it's one way for you to be able to judge a beer. Um, there are some competitions out there that don't go by style guidelines that go more by, in terms of balance and flavor. Um, you know, basically, do you like the beer or not? Is it a well-made beer? Um, but that's, you know, way more subjective. And I find it much easier to just have a definition of the style to say like, yes, this is a really tasty beer, but it's far too hoppy for the style, or it's not malty enough, or it has too much, it's, you know, it has too much roast, not enough roast, you know, are you sure you entered it in the correct category? Um, uh, so I think it's just helpful to have those guidelines. And, you know, it also goes to the history of the beer and the styles. Um, you know, Michael Jackson was also key for me to learning all the different styles. Um, you know, I've, lucky, I've been lucky enough to have, have traveled extensively in Europe and drunk a lot of beer. So I've had a lot of the European beers at the source. Um, but for some people, you know, who don't have that opportunity, the style guidelines at least give them an understanding of what they should be looking for. Yeah. So, Chris, um, just jumping to the now. So the press release talked about mentioned three styles that have been they're either updated or added to the list. Let's go through those and, and, and just tell us you know, how the process worked and why that happened. The first one, let's talk about the Kentucky Common Beer. Sure. Um, yeah, you know, uh, well, this is a great question. You know, a lot of times we're, we're pretty late to the game. Um, and this is one of those styles that's like we're about 100 years late to the game on this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, there are certain beer styles that are truly American origin beer styles. Um, cream ale is one of them. The, the California Common style, you know, Anchor Steam is kind of the progenitor of that, uh, that, whole, that whole style. And Kentucky Common. Um, and, you know, we short of having the, the that guideline, you know, a, a guideline for Kentucky Common in our document, the BJCP did have one. I think BR, you would know. I think maybe maybe the most recent BJCP is uh, what twenty fifteen is the I most think, recent. Yeah, I think it is. It hasn't. It doesn't get updated all that often, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah. we volunteers, so yeah. So they've they've got they've got Kentucky Common in theirs and. Um, in the last five years, you know, at, at our at our competitions, we've you know we've received anywhere between half a dozen and a dozen entries in a more generic kind of catch-all category for historic beer, and um, you know, so so that has really given us a an opening to, to to understand. Okay, there are commercial brewers out there that are that are making these beers, and we really we're missing the boat not having this. Um, you know, this in, in our guidelines. And so um, that was the motivation for it, really so just an that, understanding. That's how you that. respond to the market. That's exactly right. Yeah, It's not just someone says, oh, why don't we have the style? It's actually, there's people submitting that style. Yeah. 
they're telling us, um, hey, you, you know, we'll, we'll put this in historic because you, you guys don't have Kentucky Comet. So, um, you know, we, we, we pulled a few brewers. We um, uh, tried a couple of, uh, pulled a couple of beers from last year's GABF and, and sampled them. And um, and frankly, looked at the BJCP guideline itself. We also found some really great, um, like kind of, I think it was 1930s or or 40s um, technical information about about the about the category that that described, you know, not only um, not only things like original gravity and final gravity and alcohol content, but also some information about color and types of malts. And uh, and also sensory, you know, sensory outcomes, and you can get a pretty good good picture of of what that beer should taste like. So, anyway, we we developed a you know a first a first go round of it, and so this year is the first year that we've got it in there, and we'll see. You know, if we uh, we we do collect feedback from brewers and from drinkers um, year round, we've got a portal that people can submit feedback on the guidelines. Um, people are not. They're not shy. They're not hesitant to provide opinion and 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 really good feedback to us, which is fantastic. Um, we don't we don't pretend to be accurate all the time. We, you know, we want our guidelines to be as accurate as possible, but that doesn't mean we're going to nail it the first time out. Um, so anyway, we'll see we'll see how people respond to this uh, to this guideline that we've got this year, and uh, we'll most likely it'll evolve and change you know, quite a bit between the first and second year. And then hopefully it'll slow down and, and we'll be in a good spot where we don't have to change it too much for, for a while after, after this year. VR, have, have you had a Kentucky common beer before? I have had homebrew versions. Um, and I think I had one at a brew pub in Louisville a bunch of years ago. Um, but I can't, I'm not a hundred percent certain. <laughs> I just know it's one of those historic styles, you know, that sort of a, a regional specialty that fell out of like, like many styles around the world fell out of favor for the longest time. Um, and then, you know, got rediscovered and um, you know, which, which I think is great that these little lesser known styles, I mean, a lot of the historical styles that used to be in the historical or experimental category have now gotten their own, whether, you know, because commercial brewers or home brewers have been brewing them and commercial brewers have started brewing them, you know, some of the obscure German ones in particular come to mind. Yeah. Hey, Chris, um, go, just going back, I remember, I don't know how many years ago when, when Black IPA was popular, all I remember about what I know about style guidelines is it, people were calling it Black IPA, then it became the, what did, what did the BA call the Black IPA? I think it's called American Black Ale now. Oh, it is. It wasn't a Cascadian yeah, dark. It was Cascadian or dark for a while. <laughs> well, I can tell you, we we never called it that. And and uh, there's a great story there. Charlie Charlie felt really strongly about that. Um, that was one of the one of the things you know one of the the pieces of advice I I I got from Charlie, and I I really um, I've tried to ingrain that. He he said, look, whenever possible, try not to name a beer style after after a region or a country, unless it's been around forever, like, you know, like Irish dry stout or Vienna lager. But his point about Cascadian ales was, uh, look, there's people all over the country brewing these beers. And if the brewers in Northern California, you know, Southern Oregon, um, are insistent on, you know, on, on, uh, on, affixing, you know, the origin of the beer style to beers that taste like these beers do, 
then what we're going to do is we're going to call it New England Dark Ale or something like that. And Charlie was absolutely insistent that the first time <laughs> he had had beers that tasted like that were at Greg Noonan's place up in Vermont. So, so Charlie, you know, Charlie's point was, look, be, be careful what you ask for. Uh, you know, you might not get the result you want. So, well, I know that yeah, brewers in, in Vermont and also in in, uh, in in Quebec and in in Canada were all saying like, no, 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 Greg Noonan, he was the one who did this beer first. So, which I, I mean, I agree, it's you shouldn't name it after a place unless it's a very old style that you can specifically you know point to a place where it or originated. Yeah, hey, where was Greg Noonan at? He, he he was up in uh in in Burlington. Um, gosh, now I'm drawing a blank on the. It's only it's a very simple name like you know the Vermont Tap Room or it's terrible that I can't remember it. I've been there yeah, many times. Same. He he wrote one of those early early books on lager brewing too. Um, you know he was an early hero of U.S. craft. I'm I'm uh, same way. My, it's on the tip of my tongue. I can't remember the name of his place. <laughs> Well, it'll come to you. It's also great talking about – I like the last couple episodes we've been doing. We feel like we're talking more about beer legends and just this origin of of, of craft beers. Um, let's Wait, go back it, to sorry, the judges. Is, it, is like, it the Vermont Pub and Brewery? It's, I know it's something very simple like that. Well, That's for the listeners. We're going to give a, give away a beer sessions radio something <laughs> when they hear it later. But let's jump back to so the judges. So this history of, of – so uh, – Chris, there, there's been a number of judges that have been doing this a long time. At, at, at like say for example, let's go to GABF. So a GABF medal is worth a lot. Anyone that gets one, they incorporate that into their marketing, and I know it's a big part of of success for a lot of breweries. You know, coming out of nowhere and winning a medal. Um, how do how does the judges and like? There's obviously some consistency. You know, I know you've got some judges who have been doing it a long time. How do the actual judges fit in to to the GABF competition? Um, this is a good topic because I, I know that there I know some of the judges that have been doing it a long time. Yeah, well, um, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, I'm just I'm just getting to meet Br today. She's not one of my judges yet. Br will be in touch. <laughs> um, I would always, I've always been told <laughs> brewers have been telling me like you should go out there and judge. It's like yeah, I, I don't know, I don't have the time, but. Well, We'll talk. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully. But anyway, you know, we we end up with um, about ten or fifteen percent brand new judges each year at the GABF, and the the rest are judges that have done it before. You know, a few times all the way up to I've got a few judges that have done, as far as I know, like twenty five of our competitions, GABF and, and World Beer Cup combined. Um, most of our judges are from the United States, but about. About 40% of them are from outside the United States. Um, that's really important for the World Beer Cup, especially because that panel is something like 70% uh, judges from outside the U.S. Yeah. Uh, those folks, yeah, those folks, you know, when, when we've got a, a, a final round table of uh, German Pilsner, you know, you better believe there's three or four Germans sitting there um, or, or you know, uh, you know, Belgian style Lambic or something like that. We've got you know, we've got those drinkers, people who have been drinking those beers um, and understand that market and how those beers, you know, taste for their whole lives. But same thing in the U.S. We've got brewers and 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 beer writers who, you know, have been, you know, experiencing American India Pale Ale or Juicy Hazy, um, you know, or, or American Stout or, or what have you for, 
you know, for their whole professional careers. And they really understand the styles. They understand how they've evolved over time. The real, the, the really important pillars for, for beer judging are formal beer, beer sensory training, you know, where the judges have either undertaken, uh, you know, like BJCP training um, is, is fantastic. If, if you, uh, if you've got national or, or better BJCP certification, then you've got, then you've gone through and you've had the formal training and you've got plenty of experience and, um, uh, you know, you can apply to, uh, to sit on our panels, but the, the formal sensory training is very, very important. I think, uh, it's fair to say, I think 20 years ago, our, our panels were at least on paper, a lot less, um, maybe a lot less formally trained, and now, rigor, how about you, rigorous? Yeah, probably rigorous is a good way to put it. But but that said, you know the 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 training that was available to people in our industry twenty years ago was nowhere near as as diverse and comprehensive as it is now. Sensory has really has exploded in a, in a great way in in the last twenty years. You know, and and so that's really and I'm but by that I mean sensory science in general in in all food and beverage, but also especially in in beverage alcohol. And especially in beer, and so, you know, I bet you ninety-eight percent of the judges on our panel, ninety-eight percent plus, now have you know formal formal training behind them, and uh, lots of ongoing experience, whether it's you know on the job or um, different competitions, you know, like uh, uh, homebrew competitions or or local or regional professional competitions or brewery, you know, daily taste panel in their breweries, etc. But that experience is really important, and that's a uh, that's really the cornerstone for uh, for those judges is the the training and the experience. Yeah. Hey, Br, what what were the steps you know from being just a the local BJCP original you know judging test to the national? What what did you have to learn uh, to be a national the, judge? Well, so the BJCP has has different ranks um, depending. It's it's based on a combination of your test scores. Um, when I they've since modified the test, but when I did it, it was about a three hour written exam followed by uh, evaluations of of beers, like actual beers. You, we had a blind tasting, and you had to. I think you were given the style and you had to judge it as if you were judging uh, a homebrew. Um, and then it is also experience points. Um, so, you know, earn, you earn points for every ju- uh, every competition you judge or steward, uh, as well as I got organization points from organizing um, our Best of Brooklyn homebrew contest. Um, so it's, it's, it's a mix of everything. Um, and then above... I think if I needed to, the next level is, is master, which I've, I think I need to do one of my tests I'd had to do again. And I just didn't want to go through this studying, but, um, but the sensory evaluate evaluation is also, I think much more common now when I took the exam and the, the class that was taught by, um, our former member, uh, George Shapiro, who he's now brewing up in Saratoga Springs. Uh, he was, his day job at the time was a chemist. And so he had access to all of the chemicals that he could, would use to dose the beer, to get, uh, to, for the, for the sensory evaluation at the time. I don't think there were any commercial kits available to, you know, individuals, you'd have to be, you know, maybe UC Davis or something would have them in their programs. But so he was able to get all of these, these, uh, ingredients, um, for us and learned a lot. I learned that I'm extremely sensitive, uh, to phenolics. Um, however, diacetyl could hit me over the head and, you know, I have to, if my co-judge on a panel says this beer has way too much diacetyl, I'm like, it, 
I'll agree with you because I, I can't, I just can't smell it or taste it unless it's, it's a really high level. So I think that's very important to know your limitations and to be able to say like, you it's not just simply black or white. There are things that some people are more sensitive to or not. Chris, when you do the GABF judging, is it, is it a similar format like that? Like, how do you break down the judges? Are, are they doing certain categories? Yeah, that's right. We, you know, and and uh, so it starts out again, uh, you know, with with a, with a, a set of guidelines that we, you know, that we create for the competition, so that, um, you know, so that brewers know, you know, where to, you know, how to submit their beers. And I guess I guess one way to think about it is kind of like a track meet. You know, there's there's the pole vault, there's javelin, there's the mile, there's the hundred yard dash. Each of those are part of the track meet, but they're different events within that. And so, you know, that's the same way to think about like, you know, Irish stout or juicy, hazy pale ale. So those are kind of different events within, you know, within, within the overall competition. And, and then the judges, you know, we, we, um, we have a certain amount, you know, a certain number of tables for each, for each category so that the judges aren't overwhelmed. Um, and, uh, you know, the beers go through a certain number of rounds. You have to get through the first round, then you have to get through the second round and the beers kind of move forward through many, many rounds of tasting until we come up with a final round table. And that table has between, it'll either have six or 12 beers at it. And the judges have to figure out the the three best beers at the table. And then they have to decide if those beers are you know, if they meet our award criteria for, you know, a world-class beer uh, for a gold or a, a world-class beer with very, very minor, minor deviations from style. Um, so, uh, but the judges, yeah, the judges, we, we try not to have too many new judges at any given table, maybe just one or two. And we also definitely do not allow judges, you know, if you've got a, for example, if you've got a, uh, you know, an Irish stout in the competition, you don't get to judge that category. Uh, because, of course, yeah. You know, for for reasons, of course, right? You have a conflict of interest. So, anyway, we we put it together that way. Oh, that's great. So, just uh, back to style. So, I'll tell you what I'm drinking. I'm drinking uh, my friends at Killsborough in Staten Island, New York City. I have a really good hazy IPA. The other day, I was drinking the one with Sabro, which I don't know the name, and now I'm drinking the Jumping to Conclusion Double Dry Hopped, Double IPA, nine point one percent. What style? Would that be in? I mean, I, if you don't know, I'm sure you've got a, a lot of styles to think about. But a 9.1% double dry hopped, double IPA that's hazy. What category is that? I, I suppose that's I suppose that's a um, uh, uh, a juicy hazy imperial IPA. I'll pull up our 2021 guideline, but that's that's my guess. So that is a style. That's a style now. Juicy hazy imperial IPA. Yes. Wow. That's good to know. <laughs> I kind of stopped following him, but um, I do know how important the G- GABF awards are. Um, I'll tell you what, you pull that up, Chris. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode was brought to you by Poke Spices. The company's founder, Abna Foley, was born in Ghana, West Africa to a farmer father who taught her how to blend the West African Holy Trinity of hot peppers, ginger, and onion. She developed Poke Spices to help American consumers discover the flavorful goodness of West Africa through the Poke Spices spicy seasonings. Developed without any MSG, sugar, and preservatives, the award-winning Poke Spices seasonings 
can be sprinkled here and there to give your meals that extra kick. Learn more at pokspaces.org. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Become a member and support us at heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks so much for joining in. Uh, Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. I think this is our 12th year of, of uh, recording over 30 podcasts each week uh, from food, farming, and craft beverages like ours, Beer Sessions Radio. So we're talking about uh, the Brewers Association uh Guidelines and GABF awards with some great guests. So let's go back to Chris, Chris Worsey of uh, Brewers Association. So uh, the style guidelines came out in, in March with some updates. We mentioned the Kentucky Common Beer. We were just talking about the Juicy Hazy Imperial IPA uh, that I was drinking from Killsboro. But one that's interesting because I know uh, BR has spent time in Belgium and done work with a lot of international beers. Uh, there's an update to the Belgian style session ale. Um, let's talk about that. But then we also, I also want to talk about how important the World Cup is uh, to international beers. Sure, um, you know Belgian beers. Um, I'm sure I, I'm guessing Br would agree, but Belgian beers can be deceptively alcoholic. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they're they're boy are they big beers, and um, you know there, there's been. In recent years, especially in the United States, uh, but also now in Belgium, you know, uh, there's been a lot of experimentation. Finally, uh, at the bottom end of the the alcohol spectrum, and so you know, beers under five percent. So, you know, we've we've really run into some issues trying to figure out how to, you know, how to create space for those beers to to compete when everybody around them has really big shoulders, you know, when, when they're surrounded by beers at six, eight, 10, 11% alcohol. So, um, that session, that Belgian session ale, um, or Belgian style session ale category really, really came out of several years of complaints from judges saying, Hey, we just had, you know, at this table, we just had five beers that were really delicate, beautiful, subtle beers under 5%. And they didn't stand a chance against all these really other, other big Belgian style beers. And so you need to do something. And so we finally addressed that, that gap and tried to create a, a space for, you know, for the, for these much smaller, really delicate, um, lower alcohol beers to, to call home. So the, the new style is Belgian style session ale. Is that yes. correct? Yeah. Yeah. And then um, it says that – so w- when you're changing styles, it says the previous Belgian-style pale ale was renamed as Belgian-style Special Belge. Is that because that, that may have been stronger? So that, that particular change came about at the, at the suggestion of one of our, one of our subject matter experts. Um, so we've got people that we work with in, you know, in Belgium, in Germany, in the U.K., in Australia, in New Zealand, you know, all around the world that, that really, that we lean on to kind of, you know, to help us make sure that, that we're, you know, that we get our, get our guidelines, you know, flying straight, so to speak, and that we're not out in the weeds. We've got a guy in Belgium. Um, he's a, a very dear friend of mine. His name is Carl Kins. And Carl is, I think, arguably the, the subject matter expert on Belgian beer today. Um, and he recommended that, uh, you know, in the U.S., we we have 
you know, the word pale shows up in an awful lot of our guidelines. So American pale ale, juicy, hazy pale ale, strong pale ale, India pale ale. In Belgium, not so much. And that that word doesn't really connote, um, you know, sort of a, of a of a very pale orange to sort of deep orange, pale amber kind of beer. Um, and so Carl, Carl suggested that we that we eliminate the word pale. And uh, um, so anyway, so we did. Uh, we, it's that's that that change this year was more of a of a rename than anything else. Um, than any, anything really substantive within the guideline. Well, and what's interesting is with the, the the Special Belge is that when it was developed, it was a style to kind of challenge the uh, the popularity of not only German and, and Czech lagers, but also British ales. So right there, you know, they didn't want to be a pale ale. They wanted to be, you know, their own special Belgian style to, com- to compete with that. That sounds great. Hey, quickly, uh, Chris and BR. What are you guys drinking? Just so maybe we can mention what style it is as well, or what were you drinking yesterday? Because I mentioned a, a juicy, hazy Imperial IPA. Oh, um, yeah. Over, over the weekend, I, uh, I found a six-pack of, um, uh, of Sierra Nevada's new Juicy Hazy Session IPA. Uh, that was fantastic. I think it came in at like 4.5%. I could not believe all the flavor in it. Um, but uh, and and it look. I live out in the middle of nowhere in Idaho, and so we're kind of at the <laughs> end of the line. Uh, so when we get beer that's you know that's got a packaging date of less than three weeks, I'm I'm all over it. <laughs> and is that uh, a style now? Juicy hazy session IPA. Uh, it's it would fit in our session IPA category. Yeah, so you could enter you know any kind of a of a lower alcohol you know IPA um, you know as a as a session IPA. Yep. Great. And BR, what are you drinking or have you been drinking? Well, I was just the other day over uh, at Wild East Brewing in Brooklyn. And whenever I see their beers, I've got to get the, their temperance, which is an English dark mild, because there are very, very few commercial brewers doing an English dark mild. And, you know, it's only, you know, very low in alcohol, and but very, very tasty. That's great. And that's the style. Officially, Correct. right? English dark yes. mouth. Okay. Well, that's good. We have our, our other guest, uh, James Ty, beer experts, joining us. James, how are you? Welcome to the fray. Jimmy, how's, how are you doing? Hey, everybody. Appreciate you getting on a laptop and figuring out this, this audio program. Um, yeah. Welcome in. Um, I know that you, you did a lot with Cicerone. Where do style guidelines fit in, in, in your training or the work that you've done in beer? Yeah, um, I think specifically as, you know, as a Cicerone, if I'm wearing my Cicerone hat, uh, styles are everything. I mean, I think the the entire program and I think Ray Daniels, who's the founder of the Cicerone program, uh, will go out on record and say that, you know, everything hinges on beer styles to sort of really understand them um, in, in its entirety. I mean, if you're if you're aiming for the, the top tier, which is the master level, of which there are only 19 in existence currently, uh, you really have to memorize all of the vital stats. So you're talking about IBU range, ABV range, SRM, uh, apparent, apparent attenuation, uh, and also volume carbonation. And then you have to go through and you, you really have to have a firm grasp of uh, every, you know, like the, the soft the soft elements of it. So in terms of the flavor profile, the aromatics, the mouthfeel. Uh, in addition to that, you also have to understand uh, just the, 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 like I have an encyclopedic knowledge 
of the, the commercial examples out there. So at any given moment, you probably have to recite uh, off the top of your head, you know, five different examples uh, from probably like three different countries. So it's it's very important for, for, for Cicerone. So if, if you're going through the, the, that testing process with the blind tasting, you, you, you do have to know your styles. Absolutely. And, you know, that's that's kind of uh, what uh, that that piece alone really kind of scares people when when they're taking the exam on any level. Really, it's uh, you're going to be required to identify the style of uh, any particular beer that's that's placed in front of you. Wow. Chris, uh, how do you guys work with it seems like BJCP helps develop judges and, and you have quite a few BJCP judges at the GABF. Um, how does Cicerone fit in with the Brewers Association and, and these things we've been talking about? Well, you know, Cicerone has uh, has some outstanding training. Um, BR was talking about it. James was talking about it. And um, and for us, um, uh, BR, what's the what's the level below Master Cicerone? Oh, that I'm not sure. James might know. James, do you know? Yeah. So it's uh, right below Master is the advanced level. Advanced. So, um, so if you've, if you've achieved advanced Cicerone or higher then you're eligible to, you know, for, to, to apply for, uh, for, you know, for judging at GABF. Wow. And how many judges do you have, Chris, at, at, you know, this coming, is you going to have GABF this year in the fall? Yes, we will. Uh, we're, unfortunately, we're not going to have an in-person, um, festival that'll, that, that will return in 2022. Um, which I'm super excited about. Uh, we, we all should be, um, but we will have the competition again. Um, we we were able to run it last year as well, so we'll have a competition again. And this year we'll have about 180 judges uh, over about a three week period of time that will evaluate something. We're guessing something like 10,000 beers. So each judge is judging more than one category. Oh yeah. Yep. Um, they, they might have, you know, there's a, there's a morning session and an afternoon session each day. And within each session, there's three flights of beer. So they've got about three and a half hours to, to get through three flights of beer. And a flight of beer is anywhere from, let's say, seven to 10, 11, maximum of 12, of 12 beers uh, where they're providing, you know, providing feedback to the, to the brewers, uh, written feedback or, or their, um, you know, figuring out which beers are going to move to the next round or both. Wow. Hey, B- BR, with your, the, the international beers that you work with, um, do, do, do these style guidelines mean something to them? Or are they, d- does, the, does the, the World Beer Cup, is that something that's registering for a lot of the small brands you work with? Um, it depends. Some of our, the brewers would, would ship beers for the World Beer Cup, uh, and some of them would, would judge at it as well. Um, and then in terms of the styles, it, you know, it really depends on uh, the country. Um, some of the more, the countries that have sort of more of a, a newer brewing tradition, you know, say some of the Scandinavian countries, they're closer to the Americans in terms of, you know, not being extremely strict with styles or having a little bit more leeway. Um, then on the other hand, many of the German brewers are not going to set a foot outside of what a traditional style is. Um, although, you know, that there, there are certainly some breweries um, that are doing you know, German IPAs and things like that. But for the breweries that we were working with, um, yeah, it was, for the most part, very, very traditional. Belgium, 
traditional, but a mixed bag because some were also brewing, you know, say a, say a Duranc or De La Seine were brewing styles that, uh, or, or were influenced by older styles that kind of have, have evolved over the years. So they were maybe more throwbacks to what a beer would have been like in the forties or fifties, as opposed to the seventies. Um, so, you know, really it's, it depends on, on the brewer and the brewer, but, um, the, the styles tend to, to, they can matter somewhat. Yeah. And, um, for Chris, for you guys, so just in general, GABF. So last year, obviously it didn't happen. Um, what is it about the GABF that, that, that means something? I mean, this is a general question, but I want to hear it from you. Like, so you tell us how you first met your, your Brewers Association friends. What, what were you doing way back when? Cause you've got a great story and it, it is part of the whole, the magic of this, you know, Brewers Association GABF group. Yeah. Well, I, I've, um, gosh, I've, I've been lucky enough to see GABF from, just about every every different way you can see it. My the first time I went to the GABF was in 1988, and I was living in Steamboat Springs at the time. And uh, some friends that I had just met a few weeks earlier, uh, at the end of a, a summer of rafting, uh, said, "Hey, you know, before the snow flies, let's go down to Denver and go to this this beer festival thing." And uh, you know, I was I was 24 at the time and thought that sounded like a great idea. So. Um, you know, went down to the first, to, to my first Great American Beer Festival. And then in 90, 92, I think, um, I was then, you know, then I was working for a brewery in Steamboat Springs and we entered beers at the GABF. So I got to see it as a, as a brewery, you know, a, someone who was entering beers. In, um, in 1995, I, I, or 96, I can't remember which year, but um, that was the first year I became a judge. Um, and, uh, you know, really, really didn't understand what was going on behind that curtain. And I wanted to learn more about, you know, why that, why the beers that I thought were so great weren't winning medals. Um, and, uh, boy, what an eye opener that was, uh, <laughs> I, re- yeah, realized that my beers just weren't so special after all, uh, that there were, there were a lot of beers out there that were a lot better than mine. So anyway, um, uh, and then in, in, uh, uh, 2001, I think was my, the first, the first time I, I, uh, I shadowed Paul Gatza. Uh, he was the competition manager at that point and I shadowed him that first year. And then the next year I, I ran the, the GABF and the, and the world beer cup. But, um, you know, what, what's magic about GABF is, is that intersection of, of drinkers and, and by drinkers, I mean, people that really, really know their beer. They love their beer. They um, they understand the marketplace, and and producers, um, you know, brewers who likewise are incredibly passionate about what they're doing, and want nothing more than to bring their very best beers uh, to this meeting place and uh, to share ideas with with drinkers and other brewers about how how the best beer on earth is supposed to taste. And it's it's just it's so hard if you've never been to GABF, it's hard to kind of. It's hard to put that into into words, but once you've gone, uh, you start to understand just how very important the the event is to to people who go and to the industry over time. Um, it's really it's really helped make us all a lot better. I can tell you, for like as the state guilds have grown, like the New York State Craft Craft Brewers Guild, you know, the last few years, any New York State brewery that's winning medals at the GABF 
that that's a big deal. And it, it means a lot more than just winning a New York State uh, competition. Hey, James, James Ty, I'm so glad you got to join us, man. Me um, too. What, yeah. what have we not talked about? And whether you have a question for Chris or something that we, we should be talking about with Chris. Um, I've always been kind of curious as, cause you know, the, the BJCP, they also have their set of guidelines. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, this is just a personal thing, but like, you know, how often do the two bodies kind of interact with each other in terms of, you know, like pretty much seeing whatever you like, you know, what the other guidelines look like for the other, is there any influence there? Um, just things like that. I mean, I, I just off the top of my head, I know there are certain styles that, you know, the BA recognizes that BJCP, the current iteration doesn't, um, I, you know, something I, I'm thinking of stuff like, uh, like, a Imperial pale lager or like a, a session, uh, IPA, you know, and, and so I'm just curious about that, that piece. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, you know, we, we don't formally, um, you know, consult with each other as far as our beer style guidelines go, but, but I sure, I sure read their guideline. And, um, you know, for example, when we uh, earlier, earlier in the, in this program, we were talking about Kentucky common, you know, James, they, they got there before we did, uh, we were, we were really late to that party, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and the good news is, you know, in the last five years, there's just been a, a huge explosion in, in experimentation in lager brewing, you know, for, by, by craft brewers. And, um, so, you know, our, our guidelines update every year. And so we've, you know, our, basically our, our craft brewing community has really pushed us into trying to figure out like, okay, you've got, you know, 500, 500 new different kinds of craft lager that never existed before, you know, 500 brands. Can you create half a dozen buckets that, that kind of, you know, that, that uh, reflect what's going on out in the marketplace, whether it's, you know, India pale lager or contemporary American Pilsner, you know, lager beers with a lot of hop high notes, especially, and, and different ranges of alcohols, different, different colors. So, you know, just totally different sensory experiences from, you know, very traditional American lager styles or, or German or Bohemian lager styles. Take your pick. So, we, you know, we don't, we don't consult, in, you know, intentionally, but um, sometimes we do lean on each other. Nice. Chris, I, I've been talking the last few weeks. I've I've been drinking uh, Good Word Brewing any day now. It's a, a collab, but it's an Italian style pills. And a, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of brewers were were joking about it. And is that a style Italian style pills? I mean, it's like dry hop with Hallertau, which which isn't Italian. Yeah, that's a that's a really important question. We've um, I've started to reach out to a couple of of Italian beer experts um, to get their take on, on what Italian Pilsner or Italian style lager really means. Um, I don't think it's simple and I don't, I don't think the answer is simple. And I don't think that um, U S brewers have cracked that code yet. And what I mean by that is um, uh, so I like, like BR, um, uh, her story is fantastic. Like BR, I've been really lucky to to be able to go and taste beers abroad. And one of the things I've noticed when I've tried a lot of Italian craft lagers is that they have really exceptional um, residual body. They don't attenuate as far as as most American lagers do because their their malts, you know, they start out with really different malt than we do. Um, 
and and then they handled them differently in the mash tun. So those beers, you know, they don't finish it, you know, three, three and a half Plato beers. They're, they finish it, you know, in the high threes, the four, some of them are in the, the very low five Plato. So, so there's an awful lot of malt backbone there to, to, to start sprinkling some, some BUs on and, and some really interesting hop flavors and aromas on as well without that beer tasting way out of balance. And so, so part of, you know, so part of it comes down to ingredients. Um, I think our, our craft brewers, you know, they, they have access to a, a palette of ingredients that's, you know, that they've never had access to before in the history of brewing our, our folks they're, and they're not afraid to experiment or to, or to try new things either. Um, but for the most part, our, you know, our, our North American barleys um, are, you know, they were really, they were bred to attenuate purposefully, to attenuate far. And, and so I think it's a little more difficult for our guys to, guys and gals, I should say, to, to get, their, get their arms around that Italian style lager and pills and, and, and really start to get the, you know, get that final beer tasting, tasting the way they do in, in Europe when they're made with, you know, with, with malts that attenuate not quite as far. It's different, different experience. So you, we might one day see a Italian style pill style. We might see a black forest pill style, like the Rothaus pills. That's not already a style, is it? Black forest pills. Um, we don't have a black forest pills. We do have our, we do have our, um, we do have rot beer finally. Um, you know, that's a, um, a, a Nuremberg and South kind of, uh, you know, red lager style from, from Germany, but we don't have the black forest yet. Wow. That's pretty cool, man. You, you're really a, a legend and, and a, and a treasure for our, our craft beer community. Uh, hey James, what are you drinking or what, what have you been drinking and what style is it? I'll start asking that on the show. I'll start saying, what are you drinking and what style is it? <laughs> right. How about that, Chris? <laughs> nice. I, I, um, well, you know, just, I get it must be a thing because I I too have been drinking a lot of lagers. Uh, so what's what's in my hand right now is the Fifth Hammer Brass Bonanza, which is a rice lager, uh, really really crisp, uh, fairly dry, uh, but it's got like a nice sweetness that you wouldn't expect, you know, from from the rice additions. Uh, and it's wonderful for this type of uh, this type of weather during this time of year. That sounds great. Is that a style rice lager, Chris? Uh, we don't have anything called rice lager, but, um, it, you know, James, it sounded like James described a beer that was, you know, uh, with a, with a really low finishing gravity and some really nice hop, hop aroma layered on top of a really balanced palate. And, you know, so that sounds like a, um, you know, one of the, one of the contemporary American lager styles, um, you know, either pills or lager something like that. Yeah. So obviously you guys are, are thinking about and talking about beer styles all the time. Um, what, what, what's a, do you want me to ask about an, another change that you've made, like the New Zealand style pale ale? Do you want to, or do you want to talk about some other thing that that's swirling in, in your little world right now? So we can wrap it up. The, the New Zealand one's a great story. Um, we, you know, we actually were approached about 18 months ago by a consortium of, of New Zealand brewers. And it came, it came from the request actually came from the, uh, the New Zealand Brewers Association. And they said, look, you've got American pale ale, British pale ale. You recently added Australian pale ale, but we, but we've got this, this beer style that, that really has its own unique flavor, flavor experience. And it's, you know, it's New Zealand pale ale. And they said, 
can you add that to your guideline? And we said, well, okay, you know, let, you know, give us some analytical data, you know, so that we have some idea of, of, you know, the ranges of OG and, you know, original gravity and final gravity and alcohol bitterness units. What does it look like? And, and really most importantly, what does it smell and taste like? And are there any real hallmarks to the beer sensory hallmarks that a, that a drinker could say, Oh yeah, that's a, that's a really nice New Zealand pillow. And sure enough, uh, six months later, they, they formed a committee and they asked about 50 different brewers to analyze a bunch of beers. Um, and they, they collected all the, all the data we needed and created a, a full on description for not only New Zealand pale ale, but also New Zealand India pale ale and sent it over. And they basically, they made it, nearly impossible for us to to not put it in there they they served it up to us on a platter and so um you know that came straight from the straight from the horse's mouth and and uh we were we were happy to do it um because you know there are hundreds of breweries in new zealand that are cranking out great craft beer just just like here in in australia in the uk you know craft craft is happening around the world now and um you know we're we're just barely keeping up with our guidelines, uh, all the all the great experimentation and, and beer flavors that are going on out there. Well, I was just going to ask you how you decide on the new style, but it sounds like you just explained it to me, <laughs> probably as, as well as I need to hear. This has been really great, Chris. I really appreciate it. I know your team reached out about uh, – wanted to talk about some of the updated style guidelines, and I really appreciate you taking the time with us. Um, BR and James, you guys have one more question for Chris? Um, or do we cover everything? BR? No, I think uh, it was very informative. I think it, it covered pretty much any any questions I had. I, I'm curious, I guess maybe one more just to send it out. Uh, Chris, what if you were to, I mean, maybe just kind of like, you know, play play with your crystal ball. Are there, is there any direction that you see kind of with, with styles? Like, you know, from, I know we kind of talked a little bit about loggers expanding, maybe a little bit and, and kind of, dividing into, you know, more subsections and the likes. Is there anything that you're seeing um, that, that you might, let's say, that might be happening five years from now? You know, I've seen a huge change in, in the, uh, again, in lower alcohol beer offerings. And one of the huge surprises in the past few years has been the, the growth in, in uh, not only session, you know, session styles, but also non-alcohol styles. And, you know, last year we we made the mistake of combining session beer and non-alcohol beer because they were both relatively small categories the year before. And lo and behold, the, the non-alcohol beer category exploded last year. And there were, there were more of them than, than session beers last year. And so we, so, you know, we learned our lesson. We uh, had a few complaints. And um, so this year, you know, non-alcohol beer will, will be its own, its own category again. And, and rightly so, but I, I expect that to continue. And, uh, you know, we'll see. I think we're going to continue to see a lot more, a lot more beer brands in the, you know, kind of in the under five, uh, in the under five alcohol range. Um, there's so much, so much flavor experimentation in that space right now. Oh, that's great. And then another thing, will you have a hard seltzer category? Uh, we, we won't this year. And I, and I, I can't speak to, to much past that. Um, we know a lot of, a lot of craft brewers and craft beverage makers, are making hard seltzer, but for the, you know, for the time being, our, our event committee, which is, you know, a, um, a dozen or so uh, brewery members have really asked us to, to focus on, you know, beer with a capital B. So the, you know, the, the B and GABF. So for, for now we're focusing on beer. Great. 
That was a good answer because <laughs> I'm not ready to talk about things besides beer. So um, thanks so much, Chris. It's really been great meeting you and talking about the Brewers Association style guidelines. So big shout out. Thank you, Chris, uh, B.R. Roya, and James Ty for joining me here on Beer Sessions Radio. Thank you to our engineer, Armin Spengen, and our producing intern, Caroline Fox. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. Thanks for tuning in to Heritage Radio Network. All right, guys. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.